Good morning, and welcome to the house of the Lord. And good morning to you who are listening and watching online this morning. I'm Pastor David Nigro, filling in for Pastor Rick. If you have your Bibles this morning, please open to Romans chapter 6. And our verse this morning is verse 14. I'll read it in just a moment. This will be a topical message. It is titled, Under Grace. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What a powerful verse that Paul writes here in Romans. To understand exactly what he's saying, I think will take us uh, all of this morning, and I don't know if I'll fit it all in. But uh, I think more often than not, this is a verse that we, we read and we kind of read past it uh, without fully appreciating what is, is being said here. Because we're sinners from birth, we should, in fact, uh, be under the dominion of the law and of sin. But that wasn't acceptable to God. To leave us in a position of being under the law would mean that there's just no hope for mankind. And he wasn't satisfied with that. So it's because of grace that he he provides the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, which is done away with the power that sin has over those who trust in him. You know, since the, the coming of Christ, we are in what is termed the age of grace, which is what makes the gospel message so powerful. To quote the title of Pastor Chuck Smith's book, Grace Changes Everything. Perhaps we don't really understand the magnitude of such a verse because we don't really see ourselves as deserving of God's judgment. And after all, we really aren't that bad a person, are we? I don't think we see ourselves that way. And when we measure ourselves against other men and women, I, I think you can come to that conclusion. I, I'm pretty sure we could all find somebody else that we could point to and say, I think I'm better than they are. But that's not the standard. The standard is God's holiness. And so any other measurement leads us to a false view of ourselves. Now, I think it's also difficult to see ourselves truly as we are because of what God has to say here in Jeremiah Jeremiah 17, this is 9 and 10. The Lord speaking here says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So the problem really, even in self-examination, is uh, we lie to ourselves. Our heart is deceitful. In that sense, We're never going to understand truly the depth of our sin. God really has to show that to us. And I would tell you that it is not a pleasant thing to have God do. But I think it's a necessary thing in your life. For God to show you, to give you a glimpse of your heart, is a powerful experience. And one that I think um, helps to give to us a a necessary dose of humility. to, To understand Uh, where we are before our God, that we indeed are sinners, lost without him. You know, earlier in the letter to the Romans, Paul writes this, and he says this in verse 323, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Very simple verse, but it encompasses everyone. There's nobody that escapes that. 
And, you know, if you could begin to try to justify yourself, then, you know, you can go back to uh, Isaiah 64, 6, and he writes this, but we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So the best that you can produce before God is really filthy. I don't like to think about that personally, but that is what God has to say. And so I think it's, it's important first for us to, to have that understanding of who we are as sinners. And then I think we can begin to grasp just how wonderful this grace is that we have given to us by God. Another reason I think that grace is perhaps one of the more difficult concepts for us to understand is, you know, not that we can't understand its definition. Because the definition is pretty simple. It's just, it's unmerited favor. And I think we understand that part. But, you know, we live in a world with a a different system. And it's one really more of a meritocracy. So we understand the concept of the law, I think, much more readily because of that. You know, from an early age, we're taught right from wrong and the consequences thereof, right? Um, we also know that, you know, doing wrong, we avoid consequences, but doing right, we get rewards. And that's the, the idea of the meritocracy. It's a system that starts early on. So as a small child, the law is really kind of what our parents require of us, right? It's where we first learn the word no, and uh, that changes a lot. But, uh, you know, it carries on from there to what then society expects of us through the civil law and then ultimately as Christians to know what God requires of us through the moral law. In general terms, uh, obedience results in the absence of consequences, right? So if I'm driving down the road and I'm doing the speed limit, I don't expect to get a ticket unless maybe my car looks like somebody else's who's speeding. But apart from that, right, we know that If we're obedient, we should not incur consequence. And this is true. But if you add to that, then this other idea that you're rewarded for what you do right as well, you start to see the difficulty in understanding grace. For instance, you know, you learn uh, early on that if you want to receive something good, you got to earn it, right? It starts at an early age. I remember potty training my kids. My kids are all out of the house now, so it's a long time ago. But it's a big deal to get your kid out of diapers, right? I mean, there's a lot of reasons you want that to happen. And so we try to look for ways to make that happen with a uh, child. And one of the ways we would do that uh, was through M&Ms. It was clearly a bribery system. But it worked. It worked. They wanted those M&Ms. And we wanted him out of diapers. So it's a fair trade. Now, don't underestimate the power of the M&M. So, you know, really early on, kids start seeing these things, right? And then they get to school, and they know if you want to get good grades, you've got to work really hard. I mean, if you want those A's and B's, it, it, it's not easy. You've got to put the effort in. And so... They go into the workplace once they graduate from, from school, and, and it's a similar situation, right? You want a promotion, you want a bonus, you want a raise, you gotta work for it, gotta earn it. You gotta make it happen. Nothing, there's no free lunch, remember that? It's mostly true. So, all of these things, I think, contribute to us not being able to appreciate what grace really is. 
and that, yeah, it's a gift you can't, you can't get any other way except by God giving it to you. You cannot earn it, but it goes against uh, everything that I think we understand through our experiences. Now, we all know what it's like to get a gift, right? I think we, we do, most of us, hopefully. Um, and, and in some ways, that begins to, I think, give to us a little bit better understanding of what grace is. Though, you know, I doubt that the person who gave you that gift was someone that you had severely wronged. But with God, you know, all sin is against God. And so we've all wronged him. But yet, in spite of all of that, he gives us the greatest gift, which is the salvation of our souls. And this is what makes God's grace so powerful. So I want to explore the manifold grace of our Lord this morning, just in hopes of us gaining just a little deeper understanding of what grace is and and what it is not. To start with, I, I, I think we have to go to salvation. It's the greatest and I believe most important aspect of God's grace. It's a reconciliation of an individual soul with their creator through the forgiveness of sin, which is the separator of God and man since the garden. Much of Paul's ministry involved his trying to teach the grace of God as he brought the gospel message. And the evidence of man's struggle to accept this was clearly seen, I think, in Paul's writings. You know, the Jews, they wanted to blend Christ and the law. And this was a constant irritant throughout Paul's ministry. It kept coming back to them wanting to add to God's grace and him having to tell them, no, you cannot do this. It is grace and grace alone. So, uh, you know, when I think about it, really, God's grace goes all the way back to the garden. Because in the garden, there was nothing required of man. Everything was provided for him. He didn't have to work. It was just all given to him. There's just one thing that he was required not to do. And we all know what that is by now. After which, because man blew it, sin enters in. And so did the idea then of work and physical struggle to survive and, of course, physical and spiritual death. So to better understand grace, I think we first have to consider the law. The Bible tells us that the law of God is perfect, converting the soul. And that conversion, it it comes by the recognition that God's law is such that we are incapable of being obedient to all of it. When, When God gave man the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, never expires, it was sufficient to, to govern man's relationship with God and with one another. For the Jew, God gave to them additional laws. He gave to them both the ceremonial and the civil laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Then over the years, um, the Pharisees, they would add to this until when Jesus comes upon the scene, there are more than 600 laws that are now required of the Jew. And considering that we can't seem to keep 10 laws, imagine what more than 600 is, is like. And this is what prompted Jesus to say this in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, where he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so here we find Jesus, he's calling out to those who want to obey God, but have recognized that under the weight of the law, they cannot do it. And they're being crushed by this. They desire righteousness, but it escapes them. They're very aware of their guilt before God. And I think this is the recognition in what Paul is saying when he writes this in Romans three nineteen and 20, where he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the most of the law can do for us, really, is to declare us guilty. And it doesn't mean that there's no benefit in obeying God's law or that he has removed the requirement for it. But it's just that in the end, we can't be justified by it. You cannot attain to righteousness by doing all of what God has commanded you to do because you will fail. And not because you don't want to. Because you are a sinner. I am a sinner. And we are born this way. And in that is the failure. We will not be able to keep to God's law. And so the most it does, as Paul said, is a tutor. It it helps to take us to Christ. The tutor would take the student by the hand and bring them, if you will, to where they would be instructed. And this is what it is like, the law. It takes us to Christ, where we learn about grace. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, these are very, I think, familiar verses for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Listen, faith is the the conduit by which we receive salvation, but grace is how we receive it. We are saved. We are saved because of grace. Faith is that conduit. But even the faith that is necessary to receive salvation is a gift from God. If it were any other way, we could somehow lay claim to being responsible for our salvation. See, because it would be my faith. My faith. That's what did it. My faith. Well, your faith is involved. But guess what? Your faith has also been given to you. It seems like, uh, you know, such a simple verse or a set of verses to understand. And yet, you know, a lot of Christians, they, they choose to be legalistic in their approach to their, their faith. They try to live by a set of rules and forsaking the liberty that we have in Christ and, and trying somehow to live up to, to a standard that is imposed by men. So I have a friend uh, many years ago. Uh, when he first got saved, he was, he was in a church that um, was quite legalistic. And, and really what it was is they, they kind of lorded it over the flock where they looked after everything that you did outside of the church and tried to pretty much govern your life for you. So one example was he he told me he had gone to the movies, I think, on a Saturday night. And on Sunday, somebody comes up to him, one of the deacons in in his church, and says to him, you know, I saw your truck in the parking lot at the movie theater. I hope you weren't watching a movie. You know you shouldn't be doing that. And, you know, he's a new Christian, and this is where he is now being 
brought under a yoke that is not from God. And after a few years of just this kind of a, a legalistic approach to, to his faith, he, he got to a place where he was, I think, on the borderline of a nervous breakdown. He just was crushed by this and, um, and eventually left that church. And ultimately uh, was, I think, in a bad place for a while until he came to understand what grace was all about. And that changed, as I mentioned, it changed everything for him. And uh, it should be that way for all of us. Romans 12.3, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. That measure of faith that God gives to us is it's sufficient for what God has called us to. Beginning with that which is necessary to respond to his invitation for salvation. And then beyond that, what is necessary to serve him. God gives this to us. You have a free choice in whether you exercise this or not, granted. But it doesn't come from you. It still goes back to him. He gives us what is needed. In this also, Paul is saying, listen, keep from self-righteousness. You, you need to think more soberly about yourself. If you think you're something because you're not, you pay attention. You need to, to think clearly about this because you have no place to be self-righteous as you want to compare yourself to someone else and place yourself in a, in a better position. Because in the end, again, we are not righteous apart from Jesus Christ. So be careful of self-righteousness. You know, it feels good to the flesh to look at others and say, well, you know, at least I'm not doing that, right? But by the grace of God, there go I. Man has, I think, within him enough faith to believe what God has revealed to him. How do we know that? Well, Romans 1, 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the unbeliever is not going to, he's going to be held accountable because, not because they couldn't believe, because they wouldn't believe. Notice that, that he says they suppress the truth so it's, this, it's a deliberate act to suppress God's truth in favor of unrighteousness. And so, you know, God says there's enough information about himself for man to know what God's attributes are and that man is supposed to glorify God and to be thankful to him. But instead, these 
They ignored what is clearly seen and understood about God and the futility of their minds. Their, their foolish hearts are darkened. They made a, a choice is what it comes down to. And they chose unrighteousness over what they should have known and should have obeyed. You know, God gives uh, to everyone a conscience and the ability to discern right from wrong. And that there's this free will that we're also given. So, you know, it makes it possible for us to choose between the two. And so some people will say, well, what about, you know, environment? Does environment play a part in, in all of that? Well, perhaps it does to a degree because, yes, bad company corrupts good morals. But it can't all be blamed on just environment. Because good people come from bad neighborhoods and bad people come from good neighborhoods. So it's not all environment. And I think it, it just ultimately comes down to choices. We are given enough to be able to make the right choice. But often, we do not. You know, another takeaway from this verse is that uh, mankind's accountable to the information that he's been given, which apparently predates the Bible and speaking about creation itself, revealing enough to man for him to understand those basic things. And so I think it's very clear that when it comes down to it, there will be no one left with an excuse. Thereby, we all need Christ. Before we leave this section, just let me remind us all that it's futile, I think, to think that we can add anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ. If there was any other way for us to be reconciled to God, then why did God send his only begotten son to the cross? Would that not have been a cruel act to do this if there was just any other way? And in fact, that's, that's how Jesus positioned it if there was any other way to let that cup pass, but it didn't because there wasn't. Well, God's grace deals with forgiveness. You know, a lot of folks struggle with guilt. I think it's important to understand the, the grace of God, the role that it has in, in regard to this. A lot of people do struggle with the idea of God forgiving all of their sin. For some, I think it may be a particular sin, Others, it might be the, you know, the number of sins. And others, the, the fact that they commit sins even after they've received Christ. But let us consider the first two categories together. The severity of a single sin being so great that it will not be forgiven, and the number of sins being uh, so many. Jesus says this in Matthew twelve thirty one and 32. He says, Therefore I say to you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So what God is saying here is that the only sin is the rejection of the Holy Spirit. So if we reject the Holy Spirit, if we reject salvation, there's no forgiveness there. Yet, in every other case, God says, 
every other sin will be forgiven. There's no number placed upon it. There's no severity that is set to the side. It's every sin. 1 John 1, 5-7, John writes this, This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, this doesn't mean that somehow we're supposed to be sinless, though we are called to be holy. We also understand through the scriptures that we are not going to be able to live a sinless life. And I think what is being said here is, you know, it's that we ought to be walking in darkness, which is really the equivalent of practicing sin. This is a, a willfully and wantonly and without concern. That is walking in darkness. And that's not sinning out of weakness. And so there's a distinction here. Much different if one is sinning without regard or care. In that case, God says he has no fellowship with that person. In first John eight, excuse me, first John one, eight through ten, we read this, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. See, the Apostle John, he's, he's dealing with heresy in the church, the Gnostics, who were at that time spreading uh, a lie saying, yeah, you, you know, sin doesn't really matter because it's in the flesh. And if you do it in the flesh, it doesn't matter because it's the spirit that matters. And in all of this was this idea that, hey, I can kind of do what I want to do. It doesn't really matter. But that's not, in fact, the truth. And this is what John is saying. These verses, they do promise the forgiveness of sin through confession, but it, it also makes it very clear to us that we cannot deny that we are sinners. And that that would be an indication that the truth isn't in us. You can't walk around saying, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't sin. Um, yet, in this day and time where John is writing, that was potentially what they were dealing with. Also, in his letter, his first letter in Chapter 2, 1, we read, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So, you know, John's, of course, he's saying we're to walk in the light and not in darkness, to have fellowship with Jesus. And then he says, you know, he writes this so that we don't sin. So the encouragement there is, of course, not to sin. But if we do, to remind us we have an advocate with the Father, and that is Jesus Christ. You know, years ago, I had a friend at work, and I came to find out that uh, he at one point did receive Christ, but wasn't walking with the Lord, hasn't hadn't gone back to church uh, in a long time. And so, um, you know, I found out he liked to fish, and I said, well, how about, you know, we get together, I've got a boat, we go out and do some fishing. He's like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Of course, I had an, another motive behind all of this. It's like, I get him in the boat, where's he going, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have this conversation whether he likes it or not. And um, 
and anyway, so it, it, it came about that we uh, were out on this boat fishing, and I, I asked him, I said, you know, what happened? Why, why aren't you going to church anymore? And what he told me was that when he first was saved, it was his understanding that he would become a new creature in Christ. And, of course, that, that scripture is true. But what he took from that was that he would no longer sin. And, you know, a little while later, he started to figure out he was sinning still. And in his struggle, he failed to not sin. And in this, he, he thought his faith was just not genuine. It must not have been a genuine conversion. And he felt like, I can't do this. Well, I shared with him some of these verses. There we have an advocate with the Father through Jesus Christ, and that the Bible is very explicit, understanding that we are going to sin because we are sinners. And that God made a provision for this. And that his grace was such that his sin was covered. And you know what happened to him in all of that? This liberty came about, and it freed him up, and he went back to church, he started plugging into uh, the men's study there, and then he began serving. And I watched him for years after this. We worked together, and I watched him growing in Christ, and just everything about him was completely different. His walk with the Lord was vibrant, and he was just filled with joy because he was able now, in the grace of God, to go forward. And... uh That's what I think grace does in the life of a believer. Now, the Bible tells us that Satan, he's an accuser of the brethren, which is to say that he points out what we do every chance he can. But you've got to remember that, you know, as believers, we are under the blood of Christ, and God doesn't see us as we are. He sees us as that finished work, which is righteous because of Christ. And that's how the Lord sees us. And that's why he advocates for us as he does, because we are a finished work. Paul writes this about the forgiveness of sins in Ephesians 1, 7. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. I think the key to this verse is the riches of his grace. They're inexhaustible. There's not a limit there. And so that is what makes it so powerful. Well, God's grace is also responsible for spiritual gifts, the gifts that he gives to us through the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit enters the life of a believer, he he does so bearing gifts. You know, they are given so that that person uh, is able to minister in the body of Christ. And they're given in accordance to the grace of God. None of the gifts that God gives to us we deserve. None of it gives it all by grace. And the receive, you know, the reason that you receive a certain type of gift, you know, versus maybe somebody else is altogether God's doing as he fits together the body of Christ. I think, you know, the tendency for us is to view gifts in 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 a matter of importance, right? So uh, that's the thing that we do. But that's not how God sees it because we can't all be an ear and we can't all be a foot or a hand, right? There has got to be a variation in gifts. Together, it makes the body of Christ, and together we are able to do the work of the Lord. So, you know, 
A pastor isn't appointed because he's a better Christian than somebody else. And granted, there are things that can, that can um, disqualify someone from being a pastor, but it isn't a merit system with God. It's like, oh, yeah, you're pretty good. I'm going to make you a pastor. Um, or any other kind of gift that is given or appointment that God gives. They're his doing, and they're all grace. They're all by grace. We, we tend to view everything in a, you know, a hierarchical order, so it's a matter of importance. So, you know, it's pastors, deacons, lay people. We like to look at things like that. And there's a, there's, there's a role in all of that, I grant you, in, in terms of uh, the, the things that go on inside the church and in terms of ministry. There's a role there, but um, when you start to see your service for God is somehow lesser than someone else's, isn't how God sees it. It's not at all the case with him. As I mentioned, the, this, the purpose of the spiritual gifts, it's for the work of ministry and the edification of the body of Christ. And I think it's important for the believer to guard against becoming prideful also regarding what God has, has given to you in regard to your gifts or in regard to the ministry that he's given to you. Because you can become possessive of such things. And in the reality is they all belong to him. All of it. None of it's us. It's, it is an absolute privilege to serve Jesus Christ. An absolute privilege. And I would remind us that God gives us these gifts to be used. So, you know, in the parable of the talents, we find that God expects we're supposed to be at work using what he's given to us for his kingdom. And so, in the example of the servant who buried the talent given, we find that he's judged to be wicked and lazy and ultimately not a true servant of the Lord. Now, having said that, are there times when uh, we are just to sit and receive and have God build us up? Yep, there are. There absolutely is. There's times where God is just doing a work in you and not through you. But you need to know when those times are. That can't be for 50 years of your life. I'm pretty confident that that's not the case. So to be sitting in a pew year after year and just not allowing God to, to use you, to use the gifts that he's given to you, is not, is not what it should be. God gifts us for the reason of service. Look for what it is that he wants you to do. You know, one of the reasons we don't try to push people into serving is because the way we see it is God equips you. He knows, the Spirit knows what it is that he's given to you, and how you're to be used. And we, we look for God to lead you into service. Well, it doesn't stop me from saying that you should be serving. It's just I'm not going to tell you how or, or in what way. God should be doing that. And if you don't know that, you need to take that up with him. He'll show you. Well, grace also gives to us peace. Peace with God and peace in all circumstances. You know, in many of his letters, the Apostle Paul, he opens with grace and peace to you. I think it's a reminder, I believe, that as, as God's grace is upon us, we, we are at peace with him. And these are directly connected in that, you know, while we were unreconciled to God, we were at enmity with him, which is another word for at war with God. You know, man opposes him by default because he's not been reconciled to him until we are saved through Christ. So prior to Christ saving a soul, that person is categorically God's enemy. They aren't at peace with him. 
And, and you know, in case you're not aware of this, then bear with me as I read to you just a few verses that, that make this point. Matthew twelve thirty, Jesus speaking says this, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Romans 8, 7, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. And then Ephesians two fourteen, For he himself is our peace who has made both one, the circumcised and uncircumcised, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. There's also another kind of peace that we receive because of the grace of God. And that is the the peace uh, that we have because of our ability to just trust in him in our circumstances. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You know, years years ago, thankfully it's a while ago now, I was going through a pretty difficult time in life. And uh, the the folks that I worked with, some of the guys that I was closer to, they, they knew the circumstances. They were not believers. And in all of that... Um, you know, I remember one of the guys in particular was just um, in disbelief because he was expecting from me that I was in a panic. Why aren't you, why aren't you panicking in with what's going on? And uh, that to me was very clearly the Lord's doing. It was because it is a peace that passes understanding. I can't explain it, right? I probably should be panicking. But it's because of Jesus that I wasn't. I trusted that God would somehow work through these things with me and that he would not fail me. And it's because of that that there was this perceived peace. And I think it's a good testimony when someone sees that. And it's an opportunity because I told him that it was due to my faith. And I think that it made a mark upon him in sharing that. Well, God's grace is also responsible for mercy. And you have heard it said that God's grace is unmerited favor. In other words, giving to us what we don't deserve. Well, likewise, mercy then is God withholding from us what we do deserve. Keeping us from judgment, for instance. I've come to believe, though, that, that grace and mercy are inextricably linked to one another. For instance... I am experiencing the grace of God when he withholds his judgment in this sense. His patience and forbearance is an act of kindness which is undeserved. That's grace. The fact that I am saved by grace, which results in my not receiving the judgment that I deserve, might otherwise be known as mercy. So one might say that they are different sides of the same coin. The grace of God toward us is what leads us to repentance, the Bible tells us. Yet, 
You know, we can be so quick to call judgment on somebody else. So it's mercy for me, judgment for thee. Because that's how it works with us, right? Well, that's not how God sees things, thankfully. You know, in the example that Paul is going to give us in just a moment, um, those who were guilty of the same things, they were very quick to call judgment upon others. They didn't see this in themselves. They just saw it in other people. So God deal with them. Well, yeah, in the same way that God should be dealing with them. Well, why don't we desire the same for others? We should. Romans 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to the truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? It's very easy for us to do, isn't it? As I mentioned earlier, self-righteousness feels really good, but it's not. It's not in accordance with our Lord. And we have no no basis to be self-righteous. Well, let's talk about lawlessness, which is grace abused. I think it's important to talk about it. Unfortunately, we have to. Because there are those Christians who use grace as a reason to have a casual attitude about sin. You know, some even go as far as to use it as a reason to excuse how they behave when it's clearly lawless. They incorrectly apply grace as a reason they can behave however they wish. And they ignore the scriptures in the process. I don't know if you know any Christians like this. I do. I wish I didn't, but I do. And it is always amazing to me. People who are living in outright sin and then have an expectation that God is going to bless them. But how does that happen? How would you expect that to happen? But they do. And it's, I think, because they just see grace wrong. They don't understand it. It isn't a license to be lawless. Paul addresses this in Romans 5:20 through 6:4. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. John takes this same topic on as he speaks about sin and the child of God. And he says, this, remembering that the, the heresies that were being taught in this day, just encouraging people to sin. He says this in 1 John 3, 4 through 6, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin, and whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. It's important to note here 
that the verb tense that's being used by John, it denotes an ongoing habitual sin practice. And it's important to make that distinction. Otherwise, you become confused and you think, well, I I sin. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that reckless, lawless attitude towards sin where you can just headlong into it, not caring, in disregard of what God has to say. That's not something that God approves of. That is not what grace is allowed in our lives. Well, you also should know that grace is an attribute of God. It's one of his characteristics, if you will. On the far sides of the struggle, I think, for man to understand God's grace are those that see it as it's in a limited supply. And it's just given out to those who deserve it, which is interesting because, well, if it's grace, then who deserves it, right? By definition, it wouldn't be grace. On the other side of the spectrum are those that think that, you know, God's grace is it's lavished upon the believer, just allowing them to live as, as lawlessly as they like. Well, let's begin with the fact that grace, being an attribute of God, is unlimited since it, it flows from him. And so it isn't something that he's in short supply of and it's only going to go to a handful of people. It is such that it is able to be upon all of us. But God can't do that without first the, the believer really coming to Christ. I mean, for the individual coming to Christ as a believer, then God's grace really begins to, to pour out on us. There's aspects of God's grace that is on, on the saved and the unsaved, by the way. The fact that it rains, that there's crops that grow, that there's air we breathe. There's countless things that I think are examples of God's grace. Man doesn't deserve any of these things in his sinful state, but God gives them to us. And he gives them to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And so, in that, God's grace does extend beyond just the saved. But it is really only, I think, understood in its fullness, seeing what God has done as he has saved us. You know, because God can't deny himself, he's not going to exercise grace to the exclusion of truth or holiness or justice or any other aspect of his, of his being. And so they're always in harmony, God's attributes. They, they always balance. For instance, you know, if you think that God's indifferent about sin, then you don't understand uh, his holiness. Or that his justice required a way for man's sin to be paid for. This is the whole purpose of Christ coming to the cross, is to fulfill that requirement. Uh, God's requirement. He required injustice that there'd be a price paid. He also paid the price to fulfill it. Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Summing that up. One of my favorite examples, I think, in Scripture anyway, of someone who understood God's grace and his justice is, is David. We read this in, in 1 Chronicles 21, one through 13, and we read this. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. And so David said to Joab, to the leaders of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. 
And Joab answered, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are, but, my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why then does my lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? Remembering that God forbade them to number. Well, Nevertheless, the king's words prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed, and he went throughout all of Israel, and he came to Jerusalem. And then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. All Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. And God was displeased with this thing, Therefore he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And then the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. And so Gad came to David, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be defeated by your foes within the sword of your enemies overtaking you, with the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else for three days the sword of the Lord. The plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And this is what David says to Gad. He says, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So David, he he knows he's wrong, but he also knows that he can trust that God will be merciful. God will be just. Man is not capable of either of those in the truest sense. And so that's what he chooses. Well, I hope that in the time that we've looked more closely at the grace of God this morning that you have a better understanding of it, but most importantly, a greater appreciation for it. Because where would we be without God's grace? I think about that quite often. And uh, I would say that I know where I would be. Well, I'm going to end where we started. Romans six fourteen: For sin shall not have dominion over you, For you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are that uh, indeed we are under grace, and and all because of your love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us, Lord, and we, we know this and how we appreciate it. Thank you for your grace this morning. It means everything to us, Lord. We ask now, Lord, as we close the service, that you would indeed impress all that you've done upon us, Lord. Make us useful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.